0: Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp O'Shart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Speech and language therapy for significantly delayed early intervention kids is tough, especially online. It can be frustrating for all concerned, the child, the parent, and the speech-language pathologist. However, after interviewing my guest, Honestly, it makes me want to grab an early intervention child, log on to Zoom, and do therapy with the child and his or her parent. You will know exactly what to do step by step. So grab your pen and paper and get ready to take some serious notes on an impressive therapy method for early intervention kids and how to empower their parents. Today, my guest is Karen Lewis-Searcy, SLP. She earned her Master's of Arts degree from the University of Illinois in Champaign, and her BA degree from Elmhurst College, also in Illinois. She has decades of experience in therapeutic supervisory and administrative positions, and it doesn't look like she's slowing up. Currently in the San Diego area, she is a speech-language consultant at the Terry Crimson Center on the clinical faculty at San Diego State University and a consultant to RAINS Therapeutic Horsemanship, which sounds quite interesting. Karen has presented hundreds of times independently as well as with other SLPs on the topic areas of early intervention, autism, behavior management, AAC, as well as how to empower parents. In 2013, she was awarded the Outstanding Service Award from District 9 of the California Speech-Language Hearing Association, the Distinguished Service Award from the San Diego Imperial County Infant Development Association in 2012, and then in 2010, the Health Hero Award from the San Diego Autism Society. No doubt, all were well-deserved. She's a therapist, author, presenter, and amazingly knowledgeable and intuitive when it comes to working with children and their parents. I am
1: thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the speech link, Karen. Thank you so very much, Char. I I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you and your group.
0: Well, I'm glad you're here, girl. All right. Now, I I bet there's a lot of SLPs listening that work in the schools And they not only have elementary age kiddos on their caseload, but they probably work with younger children as well. So we are today, we're talking about communication disorders and working with the parents of younger children. So early intervention and maybe even preschoolers. So to get us started, no doubt the primary issue is that children are not developing speech and language appropriately. And and you could probably write a book on this. (laughs) What a great idea. (laughs) Yeah, there you go, in your spare time. I want to narrow down the question a little bit, and if you could briefly tell us what are some of the specific communication issues that you see, most often see, in younger children?
1: Typically, what I come across first is a child who cannot express his needs, which is very frustrating for both the parent and the child. Um, sometimes it's because of some parenting styles, because the parents anticipate a child's needs, and when they're very young, will just give them things um, that they anticipate that they might need, and then the child becomes sort of prompt dependent on that in a way. The child just assumes if he starts crying, he'll get something to eat, or he will get something to drink. Um, and he, I have a child right now I'm working with who is two and a half and she just throws a complete meltdown temp- temper tantrum when I put on the wrong uh, music video or if her parents turn on the wrong dvd and rather than giving them some inclination or giving me some inclination of what it is she wants instead So what we're working on is trying to empower the parents by giving them a way that they can help their child communicate before we even know what the diagnosis is. So I use a lot of gestures and something to replace the words because we can't help a child speak, but we can help a child communicate. Um, I don't really know until I've been working with the child if they have a comprehension problem, if they're understanding how to decode a message that they're getting from a parent. Um, so I start sort of backwards. I help them encode. I help them tell their parents what they want to that they want their parents to do.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about that crying behavior or, you know, whatever that type of behavior is that can be categorized probably as a behavioral issue. So is that the connection, the The behavior that the child does in place of speech or language in order to uh, to share his wants and needs and and so on. Is that the
1: behavioral issue, do you think, most often? Most often. Now, it does get more complex when we're working with children with uh, autism, Mm -hmm. because we know we've got some sensory issues. But if you think about it, whenever any of us are highly frustrated, we all have a heightened sense of our sensory system, right? So I think that that's why we see so many children with autism having sensory needs because they're so frustrated by their their inefficient ability to communicate. And then we have parents who respond differently. If if a child can't communicate their needs efficiently, we may have one parent who will, again, anticipate the child's needs or give them lots of options. You want something to drink, you want something to eat, you want something to play with. Mm -hmm. Then we've got other parents who get very impatient with their children, and not because they weren't patient to start out with. By the time we meet them, they've had like two years probably of an ineffective form of communication. And that's why I'm such a proponent of early intervention because I wanna get in there and help develop that parent-child interaction before it gets fully disrupted. Yes,
0: oh, that makes so much sense to me. Um, how do you do this? I mean, we're in the middle of COVID. It's probably better, quotes, to go to the person's home or maybe in a clinical environment where everybody's there and, and we can see one another in person and so on. But, you know, just a personal view here, what's going on with all of that? How do you do this type of interaction with the parent and then sort of modeling with the child How do you do that over the internet?
1: So I've been a speech and language therapist for 45 years, and I've been doing telepractice since March. Mm -hmm. Um, So this this is a real huge learning curve for me along with the rest of the world. Um, The irony for me is that in 2007, I started working with a research group. We were trying to develop the earliest intervention For children at risk for autism. So we call it, uh, we we stopped using the term autism because we were working with children under the age of three, and it was really concerning the parents to be told that they needed to enroll in a program for possible autism. So we call it Children at Risk for Communicating and Relating. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's called Project Impact for Toddlers, which is based on the work of Brooke Ingersoll, who is a, a psychologist and autism researcher, and Anna Dvorzak, who is a speech and language pathologist. And they developed a program for older children called Project Impact. And we, this committee and that I've been on since 2007, we've developed it further to include specifically activities for parent-child interaction. And the whole concept was based on our need to coach parents. And mm-hmm. we tried to move away from the term parent education because that's just implying that the parents did something wrong. Uh-huh. That's how the parents often hear it. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I wish I'd had a book. So we, we've gotten rid of the term parent education and we talk about parent coaching. And I personally use the term parent uh, reciprocal po- coaching because I want the parent to feel and I believe it, that the parent can coach me about their family dynamic and about their child, and I can coach them about which strategies we're gonna trial and see which which one is gonna resonate for their particular child or their particular family. Mm -hmm. Um, So when the pandemic hit and we were all told, well, we we have to do telehealth, this group and I met as, for our monthly meeting in sort of a panic state of how do we do this? How do we do all of this through telehealth? And we laughed at ourselves because we realized this is all about parent coaching. And the, the pandemic has forced us to do it even more so mm-hmm. because we don't have direct access to the child. And oftentimes, and a student just asked me that this question this week, um, what if a parent doesn't want to learn how to stimulate their child for speech and language they just want us as the professionals to quote fix and quote the child yes and i said that's the beauty of having to do telehealth right now because that's not an option i at least here in san diego um, my students this this is their first rotation um actually this is this group, the spring group, this will be their second rotation to do clinical work. And they've never been able to do face-to-face because San Diego State University is not allowing graduate students on campus. So we're doing all of our work via telehealth. And it's been challenging, but it's forced the students to work directly with the parents and Coach the parents, and I'm having to teach coaching to my students. I can say teach to the students because they're actually in an education academic environment. Sure, um, but it's been um, it's it's been less difficult than I thought it would be, and I'm hearing that from a lot of therapists, um, not so much teachers. And I do have to say, I was on a Zoom yesterday in a classroom with 23 students and I I understand that's different than what we're doing when we're doing one-to-one treatment Um, but I've only done one-to-one treatment with the exception of some paired peer groups in the past Um, what I'm able to do is work with the parent and the child on the computer screen and coach the parents to hand over hand follow through with a gesture if the child can't say or won't say the word. So I never ask a a young child to do something I can't help them slash or make them do. And that's sort of the tenant. I make sure that I'm stressing with the parent. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you don't ask them to do something you can't follow through with. That's very, very important. Yes.
0: So your approach is pretty much coaching the parent and for them to work with their child. Is that pretty much what you're doing? I mean, you're doing that now pretty much online. The situation is a little bit different because when you're in person, you can model. Right, right. But so your coaching has been enhanced via Zoom, I would say. Is that what's happening then? It
1: absolutely is, and I'm finding it pretty uh, refreshing because it's forcing me to not do it myself. One of our other tenants in, in our work with Project Impact for Toddlers and in my program, Parent-Child Sign and Speak, is to make sure we don't outshine the parent. It's so simple when we're in the clinical setting or in a home because we become the experts on stimulating language and facilitating responses. We can, we can work with the child and in a minute we can follow through. Well, that's harder for the parent because they've got the emotional overlay that we don't have. They've got this sense, many of the parents have the sense that I'm doing something wrong all the time because I can't get my child to do it, but she, the professional, can get my child to do it, so why don't I just Mm. let the professional do it? And that's why in early intervention, it's very, very important to empower the parents so that they feel that they can try these things and we shape their behavior in the same way we shape young children's behavior. Every time they come close to the target, even though they haven't gotten the target, we make sure that we reinforce them. So we say, that was a really good try, mom. I'm so glad you did it. Or I I hear myself saying this a lot to parents on telepractice now. Um, That was perfect timing, mom. Now she missed five other opportunities to hand over hand have her child gesture for on when I've turned the music off because as soon as mom takes her hand and helps her gesture on I immediately turn the music on but mom may have missed five opportunities before that to do that I don't criticize that I just keep saying okay this time I want you to take her hand and help her do on and Then that way the child is seeing the connection. It's sort of a cause and effect Mm -hmm. if I do this then I will get what I want, which is the music on. Um, then we, as we start to work with the parent and the child, we'll see will the child start to try verbal word approximations. Um, we don't know if, if the child has apraxia. We don't know if the child is not understanding what the target is. We don't know if the child doesn't understand the concept of imitation but these are the dynamic probes we're gonna do to find out. Most children will start doing gestures independently when they understand what it is that we want them to do. And from that point, they will start fading their use of prompts, fading their use of gestures to use the words instead, because that becomes more efficient for them.
0: Now you use the word sign and signs and gestures. So are you talking about signs, as in sign language, or are you making up signs as you're going along, <laughs> or, you know, I'm saying, or, or you know, the parent, you know, comes up with something, or are you talking about sign language, and you're saying, okay, here is the sign for more, or a sign for whatever. I know that one's used quite a bit, but get us into some therapy here, Okay.
1: Okay, well, I'm really glad that you used the, the example of more because I don't want families to use more, want, or please. Okay, Because good. a lot of times we will hear somebody say, oh, my child or the child I'm working with has a mean length of utterance, M-L-U, of four to five words. Give me an example. I want cookie, please. I want go, please. I want more, please. I want all done, please. Well, we know from developmental viewpoints in in literature that pronouns are later developing, so I is probably not going to be one of the first words. Mm -hmm. Want is an interchangeable action word, verb. So I can't really visualize want, but I can pair want with virtually anything. The object itself is very specific. I want cookie, I want ball, I want play, I want all done. Those are very explicit. And then please is a very polite term, but it's the I, the want, and the please become, for children with language disorders, they become frozen phrases and or just chunks of consonant-vowel combinations that have no pure meaning to the child. Mm -hmm. So I start out with carrier phrases of two words, really, because I'm targeting one word for the child, and it's usually an object because that's the most motivating for the child. So I will teach the child to gesture for cracker or go or all done. And I'll pair it with another word in front of it so that that becomes my carrier word, close word. And I use the inflectional pattern to elicit a response. So if I say blow and the child wants me to blow the bubbles, the child will either gesture bubble, and I'm using my hand right now and I realize you can't (laughs) see me, so that doesn't help. Um, But the child will eventually start saying a a word approximation for bubble because that's what she wants. And then she's already paired bubble with blow instead of want or more. So when I want to work toward a two word combination, I can get the child to say the whole phrase, blow bubble. And then I add modifiers or prepositions like blow bubble up mm-hmm. or blow big bubble. In terms of whether I'm using American Sign Language, back in the 80s and 90s, I think I was trying to. Um, it's, th- these children are not deaf or hard of hearing, so they're not gonna be communicating with the deaf or hard of hearing community. Mm-hmm. And those aren't the signs they need to learn. I want. I tend to use baby signs, and if you Google images and write in ASL for anything, a lady in a green shirt—it's a caricature. I think it's an. Um, she's not animated, but she's just a cartoon drawing. Um, she will show what the baby sign is for whatever word I want. And I'm, recently, I would say within the last five years, at both Rains Therapeutic Horsemanship as well as my independent work with parents, I cut and paste those iconic pictures of the lady doing the baby sign. Um, And I tell the families and I tell the instructors, the horsemanship instructors, to use the same number of movements for their gesture as there are syllables in the word. Because we're trying to jumpstart the communication process, and we don't know what the breakdown is. Is it motor planning? Is it encoding? Is it word retrieval? We don't know what it is for the children, but we want to make sure that we're targeting everything at once. So, And I learned that from a boy probably in 2005. He had autism and apraxia, and I had taught him a made-up sign. I completely made it up for butterfly, but I was doing a hand movement that had multiple movements in it and he looked at his own hand and and said uh or i and did three movements Aww. so i realized we compare the the motor planning for the oral motor with the larger motor movements and i've talked to some occupational therapies therapists uh, over the years who say that that is true that we can we can get better neurological organization if we start with the big movements and start refining it to the smaller movements. The other beauty of using gestures and doing this technique of doing the same number of movements as there are syllables in the word is we can give multiple input to the child. So he's getting kinesthetic, if we're doing hand over hand gestures, he's getting kinesthetic, proprioceptive, auditory, and visual stimulation. And that's fabulous. He's And then he can choose what's what's the one that's going to be meaningful to him.
0: I love it. Now, I am on the internet. What did you want me to put in for the
1: lady in green? (laughs) Google ASL for ball and click on images to make sure that Google's just sending you to the images page.
0: Mm, okay, because I put in baby sign language, and that wasn't it.
1: No, a- ASL for ball. And make sure you click images. And you see the lady in the green shirt? Yes, there she is. So I use a snippet tool on my computer, and I will cut and paste that. So I can, because now that I'm doing telehealth, I create... Um, PowerPoints for my families. So I ask them, tell me three activities that your child is really loving to do. So maybe the child loves to play play ball, the child loves to eat crackers, and the child loves to read a book. So I can provide the parent the AS, the baby sign gesture visually for play and for ball, for Eat and for cracker and for read and book. And I even um, recently started working with a child whose mother is Italian and she wants her child to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. So we not only are doing ASL signs, which are the same, I told the mother she's not going to be using ASL or Italian sign <laughs> language, so we don't need to worry about that. Okay. But I just, I do alter the gestural movement to match the, um, how many syllables there are in the world word. So for instance, I can't even tell you what, um, playroom is in Italian, but it's, I know it's got six movements and playroom in English is only two, Mm -hmm. right? So for playroom, I'm going to gesture two movements. And mom will gesture six when she's doing playroom in Italian. Interesting. So, I, I also worked with a child from Japan years ago. We had a group that was bringing children from Japan to America for six weeks of treatment. And Japanese words tended to be longer mm-hmm. uh, than English words. But again, it's working with the parents, and I have actual worksheets that I use with the parents. Tell me the activities your child likes, and I limit it to three to start because I don't want to overwhelm the parents or the child. So we'll start with three activities that the child really likes, and I'll come up with an action word and an object word, and then we'll translate that into baby sign. Um, And then we've got our three target phrases that we're going to do. But never, we can add more later. For instance, I had a child who did a lot of great gesturing and she could do eat cracker anytime she wanted to eat a cracker. So then I added more. So it's not that I'm saying that those words are bad. I, I, I understand the value of those words and we can add them later. But when we're trying to jumpstart the communication system, we have to start at a level that's very meaningful. I want the child to recognize that absolutely every single utterance has an explicit meaning let me just say it works really great when the parent understands it and is able to follow through Uh, last semester it was a little challenging because if you have a a child a parent who can't follow through or is overwhelmed as we all are right now during the pandemic right um, it's just she she can't seem to follow through so our focus has to be on encouraging the parent to follow through, and then we'll get the child's follow through.
0: And are you saying, is the parent saying uh, that she doesn't or he doesn't have time to do this? Or are you talking about, are they just having difficulty learning how to to sort of apply this or both?
1: I think it's more the, the latter. I think it's more that they're having difficulty learning to apply it because it's much easier for instance, to give the child a bowl of ice cream to eat than to hear her screaming. Okay. And I completely understand that. Um, if, if the child doesn't want to sit in front of the computer, which is happening a lot, we're all, I think we're all experiencing that to some extent, mm-hmm. um, we want to make sure that we can encourage the parent, just like we do encourage a child. If we're working one-on-one with a child, We're going to give him so much verbal reinforcement, so much verbal praise. We have to do that with the parent as well, but we have to be authentic. We have to be genuine in our responses. And I think that's harder for younger therapists because they feel pretty overwhelmed. The parents are generally a little bit older than they are. The parents have children, and most of my students do not. Um and I, I remember being a student and feeling like, oh, I just want to work with the kid. I don't really want to work with the parent. I don't, that makes me really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But now we're in a, a phase in our world where we have to get the parent to do it. So I think it's really good, particularly for young therapists. I'm finding it pretty easy because I've been doing it for so many years. Um, but teaching it is different. And getting a young clinician to trial things where they're feeling pretty overwhelmed by the process and they're just learning how to chew gum and walk at the same time. It's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to integrate what they've learned in their academic studies into a clinical experience, which is challenging. If any of us can think back to when we were going through graduate school, that was challenging in and of itself. Yes. But now they're having to do it where they're dealing with parents one-on-one and they're having to have the parent follow through. And um, it I really feel for the students this whole academic year 2021 has been really challenging.
0: Yes, it's above and beyond. Now, thinking of the parent again, and I know that parents have immediate situations and immediate needs and that, um, you know, old habits die hard. Right. Um, so... <laughs> Do you ever, or is it advisable to mention to the parent, and I I would never use the word homework with them, but do you ever give them, like, here's three things that you know that you could focus on this week with Johnny?
1: Yes, that's a very good question, and I'm so glad you said you never used the homework word with parents. Um, That was one of the complaints that one of our focus groups had about clinicians that we're always talking about homework. It's got to be. It's got to be in the moment. We, and one of my goals always and what I tell my students as well as what I think myself when I'm doing therapy, is I want the parent to feel successful in the interaction because that's really what's going to keep the parent motivated. If I don't feel like I can do this, I'm not going to keep trying. Right. Um, so we've got to find that moment where the parent is going to be successful. Um, I've had, I've asked parents to use those three activities. That's why I ch- try to choose things that they do or automatically with their child. So for instance, if a child doesn't like to take a bath, he doesn't like water, we're not going to choose that as a communication option. Mm-hmm. because. There are three strategies or elements that we're we're really focusing in on with all children. I know this has been used a lot with children with autism, but we do it with everybody. We want communicative temptations and playful obstruction. I used to call playful obstruction sabotaging a child's play, and I got scolded by an administrator in a school (laughs) district. But since then, I found out there's actually a term called playful obstruction. So communicative temptation is if the child knows how to get the DVD and turn on the remote and get the DVD playing, that's not a communicative temptation. The kid doesn't need a communication partner for that. But if we remove the item, from his reach. It means the item is within view, but not attainable ah, without yeah. having a communication partner. That's communicative temptation. So mm-hmm. things like putting a wind-up toy um, in a plastic container where the child can see it, but he can't access it and, until mom or dad open the box for him. And he's done a gesture of open. Um, playful obstruction is when we get between what the child wants and our bodies so i used to do this a lot at reins therapeutic horsemanship where i would the, at the end of a ride the children would like to feed their horses carrots and these are only children who have developmental disabilities um, i they take the carrot the chopped carrots from one big bucket to a smaller pail and then bring the pail to the horse well, I would put my arms across the big bucket and they couldn't have access to the carrots until they gestured for me to move. And I would hand over hand, take their hand and do the gesture for move and say move. And the kids would look at me like, what's wrong with you lady? Why are you make- blocking my <laughs> access to these carrots? Right. And w- w- by the third time, the child is able to independently tell me move and then he gets to fill up his bucket full of carrots. Oh, Telling the parents these things has, has been really helpful. Playful obstruction, communicative temptations. The third one is inadequate portions. And I really wasn't as successful with that particular strategy as I was with the others. Um, but in that one, you pretty much don't give them enough of what they want. So um, if a child asks for cookie, requests cookie. You give him a tiny little piece of a cookie. He's not going to want that. And then you can um, help him say big cookie or whole cookie. Um, I did this a lot with popcorn with a young boy from Japan, actually. And he would ask me for popcorn using a gesture and I would give him one kernel. And he would laugh at me. He thought that was hilarious. And then he would say three popcorns grammatically, it's not correct. We can worry about that later. But what we're getting is the immediacy and helping the parents see that, oh, I can do this. I can really do this. But it's also interesting when you're working with parents to find out that they've got some odd biases and you have to help them recognize that, for instance, a child may not want to say peas at nine o'clock at the, in the morning because you've brought cold peas to the clinic for him to request. Um, they, they smell bad. <laughs> they, they are very unappealing mm-hmm. um, at, at early in the morning. So helping the parent understand what is it that my child wants, how does he get it now and how can I turn that into a communicative act? And so those are the three things that I want to work on with the parent and help them be successful with it. I have a, a child right now who um, I, I am suspecting she has apraxia and she's really not wanting to do the gestures with me. Um, and she throws herself down on the ground. But the father has told me, It's working at home with them. Mm -hmm. So that's been very successful, and that's really good to see.
0: Definitely. This is great. You know what? Take me through a little bit of a session. Um, I'm having a hard time connecting, you know, what is the parent doing? What is the child doing? Do they come up with those types of interactive play type of things or... Um, you know, you just use what's around the house or what the child likes, or how do you zo- zoom in on that activity so that you can then bring
1: up these types of techniques? Um, what's been working recently with the pandemic, I guess it's not so recent, it's almost a year now, I have found, I, luckily I have seven grandchildren, and so my youngest, one of my youngest, was a little bit delayed. She just had a typical delay. She had been in NICU for 12 days. But at two, she had a very small vocabulary, and she really wasn't doing two-word combinations. And I started using the gestures with her because all she needed was the visual to see, oh, I got to say the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And she and my daughter taught me that Cocoa Melons is a great music video youtube for children Mm -hmm. so and and so my my students and that's the other great thing about the pandemic (laughs) find trying to find a silver lining here right um (laughs) my students have become way more creative in making their own materials because they've had to Mm -hmm. um it's really hard to maintain a child's interest to the screen right that's why i've been using powerpoints um with pictures on it for um, getting those gestures taught to the children. And also, what I'll do is uh, for a break, I was using YouTube, Coco Melon, and some other um, places. Uh, I, there's other, I think Simple Songs is another one. They have music videos of familiar nursery rhymes like Old McDonald and Wheels on the Bus, things that we would use in therapy anyway. Mm-hmm. We use, in addition to the gestures, we use, um, well, one of the ways we use the, the gestures is we use them in song and nursery rhymes so that the children can fill in the blanks on something familiar. So if we're doing itsy bitsy spider crawled and we wait, And we wait. And that's something that we have to teach parents. That's that's something I have to teach my clinicians and my student clinicians and something that I have to remember myself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We itsy bitsy spider crawled. Wait, wait, wait. Then we can use the gesture for up, but we don't say the word yet. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait, wait. The child still doesn't say the word. Then we can do a phonemic or sound cue, uh, so we're not saying the whole word. We're not providing the full model yet because we really want to help facilitate word retrieval if that's the problem. We don't know what the problem is from the beginning, but we have to teach that to the parents. So I can do that. I've started using that with the cocoa melon songs where I'll do wheels of the bus. You can slow down. I don't know if anybody knows this. My students taught me this. You can slow down the speed of the YouTube video, which I never knew. I didn't know that. Uh, and then I didn't either um, because the songs tend to go way too fast for children yes. who are having word retrieval or word, uh, just any kind of word production generation issue. Um, and then I can also stop the video right at a point where the kid is really, really interested in it. So now it's sort of playful obstruction, right? Uh-huh. And then I instruct the parent. I say, music, and I wait. And then I do the gesture on. And then I have to help the parent say, Mom, you do it now. Ready? Music. And Mom will do it. So she's modeling it right next to the child. The child still doesn't do it then we, I say to the parent, okay, mom, you're going to help her do it. Ready? Music. And then hand over hand, take her hand. Okay, mom, good job. Oh, awesome. That was perfect timing, mom. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I had to do a lot of cajoling to get mom to do that. But in one case we had where it was so difficult for the parent, we kept track because we always want to collect data the only data we were able to collect on this one was how many prompts we had to give the parent to prompt the child. Mm-hmm. And we saw by the end of the semester, the parent was able to do it independently. And then we could start measuring the child's dependence on the prompt. Yeah. So there are, there are ways, I think we're all learning as we go through this pandemic and we're learning how to use telehealth, that all the strategies that we were using prior to the pandemic um, can be translated to something, particularly in terms of parent coaching. Now I do know there are younger therapists who are still going in home. Um, I have a former therapist who used to work for me and she's making sure she knows how many people are in the home, how many people are going to work, how many people they're exposed to, are they wearing masks? She comes into the home and she does the, She takes the temperature of everybody that she's interacting with. She's still doing parent coaching because she knows that that's, even in the home, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And that becomes, um, there's a lot of research. And if you just hear the verbiage of speech and language therapists over the last five years, I'm hearing way more parent coaching than I am parent education. And I'm really happy to hear that because I think we are moving in that direction.
0: Good. You know, I want to go back to, um, to using your songs and your videos and that kind of thing. And it is so interesting to me how you're using your, you know, your communicative temptation and your playful obstruction and so on. Prior to that, if you are watching a video or you're doing songs or, or something along those lines, how many times do you watch it or listen to it or sing it? or experience it before you start doing these other things so that the child can kind of learn it and hear it so that they can fill in the clothes.
1: Right, that's a really good point. So when we used to do parent-child sign and speak, um, we were doing um, 10 weeks and we would have two sessions each week We would introduce itsy bitsy spider went up the something like that. I think we had three or four different nursery rhymes. Itsy bitsy spider went. We would immediately, it would take time for the parents to learn to pause before they say up and give the child time to respond independently. Most of the children by the time they're two and a half, have already heard some of these songs. So they know Itsy Bitsy Spider, they know Wheels on the Bus. Okay. Um, But it's really more teaching the parents to include the wait time, include the pausing. When we did Project Impact for Toddlers, for our slides, when we're training therapists on how to integrate Project Impact for Toddlers into their repertoire of other therapy tools that they're using, We wanted to make stop signs because we were thinking we've got to teach therapists to, to pause. We're working a lot with um, BCBAs and AB people in ABA Mm -hmm. therapy um, and teaching them, you've got to give the kid time to decode what it is we want them to do and encode a response. And for some children that can take a long time. I worked with a 16-year-old with autism years ago, and I actually timed it. It was 45 seconds before he could process a question. But nobody was ever, none of us were ever giving him 45 seconds in which to do that. So we had to really, um, I had to tell the parent, the parent and I were sitting across from the child, the student, and I said, you know, he's reading our facial expressions, and he's looking at our body language, and he's trying to grasp at anything, so he can get a clue of what to respond. So I said to mom, just freeze after I ask him a question, and I'll freeze. And and he behind him on the wall was a, a clock with a second hand, so I was able to actually time it. And I said, Aaron, are you wearing blue or red jeans today? And he jumped up out of his seat and said, red jeans, red jeans. And he kept looking at our faces, but we weren't moving. Our bodies weren't moving. Our faces weren't moving. And he finally sat down and he looked down at his pants and he looked back up at me and he said, blue jeans. (laughs) And that was when I realized that's unusual to have a 45 second time delay like that. Yeah. However um it, it is and it is even di- more difficult with children young children because if you've waited 45 seconds usually you've lost the child right by the by that 45 seconds he's gone out of the room so we usually i re- recommend that people working with young children tend to wait we we want to give them 3 to 5 seconds before giving them a prompt okay. and making sure we're not going straight to the model
0: all right good the signs and the gestures. do you ever have a parent that's concerned about doing these types of things that it might hinder development of their child's verbal skills?
1: Virtually always. Um, and my favorite is the Italian mother that I'm working with now. Um, both parents are MDs, and when I first came to the house, which was in February before the pandemic, um I said that I always use gestures to jumpstart the communication system. And they said they really didn't want to because that was going to become a, um, a crutch for her. She would use the gestures instead of words. Mm-hmm. And we hear this a lot when we're introducing AAC, um, an AAC device, a, a dynamic display device. Um, I hear it with gestures. Um, I What I told the parents is there's she will not choose to use the gestures instead of speech because it's more efficient to use speech than it is gestures. She will start fading her use of gestures once she can speak. And I was working with the mother in their living room. um, And one day she just turned to me tearfully and she said, thank you for teaching us these gestures. We would never have known how smart she was because th- th- this little girl has a rare disease and they, there's part of the disease is intellectual deficit. Well, the child picked up on using gestures within two weeks and started making up her own gestures when she wanted a kiss from her father, um, when she wanted to be, one of his favorite things to do is fly her like an airplane. And she loves that, so she made up her own gestures. And that I'm using that mother's quote now when I'm working with other parents. Um, I have the same problem when I'm introducing, like I said, any type of um, AAC device. Parents are reluctant because they're afraid the child will just um, glom onto that. I recently had a parent who didn't want me to use any of the music videos because she said um, her doctor said too much screen time. And that is a problem. You know, for years we've been talking to parents about don't do too much screen time. Now we're saying everything's on screen time. Right. Um, So with this parent, and this is what I try to do with parents. I try to meet them where they are and motivate them up from that by by showing them, not by telling them, but by showing them it can work. So I never did any screen time with this five-year-old with autism and apraxia because the mother really didn't want me to. And one day she said, well, if you, I told her how we could get him to request on because that was one of his favorite things to do is watch a video. And I said, is it okay if I show you? And she said, yes. So now we're doing it every session. And he is saying movie on. So um, it it is, I think it's really important. I was just in an IEP doing an IEE this week where the school SLP um, really didn't want to do any of the facilitated communication, which I understand we don't want to, we don't want to encourage facilitated communication, Um, but the way she said it to the parent left the parent feeling unheard. And I think that's something that we need to make sure that all therapists are aware. We have to make sure that we're working as a team with the parent and that the parent doesn't ever feel that we're working against them. And there are ways, and I've done this with parents when I've said, well, I can't take the facilitated communication in the format. I can't use that data to report, but I can report the data if we have controlled these variables. So it's giving the parent a solution instead of saying, Oh no, I'm completely against what you're doing. So in the case of facilitated communication, I've said, the communication partner can't know what the answer is to the question that we're giving. So for instance, if we say who pollinates flowers, the communication partner knows the answer is bees. And then the child spells out bees. So that information I can't take. But if I say to a child, what did you eat for dinner last night? And the communication partner doesn't know that he ate spaghetti and he spells out very poorly the word spaghetti, I can accept that because she didn't know what it was and he was able to phonetically spell out spaghetti. So that makes the parent feel more heard and then we can progressively move them over in the direction that we need them to be in.
0: Right, Um, do you think that perhaps these types of techniques could be used with older kids too?
1: I'm working with a 16-year-old who has a stuttering disorder on telehealth and I'm working with an 18-year-old with autism and apraxia and some of these strategies are still applicable. You just have to be able to think out of the box and understand how to apply it for that particular child with that particular family, regardless of the age.
0: Yes. You know, that makes sense to me I, because I was thinking, you know, because we do have a lot of people listening um, that work with the elementary kids and, and older, that a lot of this can be applied to just about any age. Right. So this is excellent.
1: Yeah, think about communicative temptation, playful obstruction, and inadequate portions. And also what I didn't get into, which I think is important, um, I also work on sound imitation where I'm pairing a sound with a hand gesture. In the 60s, it was called cued speech. Mm -hmm. But it helps. Initially, I did it because I wanted the parents to feel that I was targeting what was important to them, which is their child speech production. And so I was doing it to appease parents, but in the, along the way, I found out it actually works. So I think that's another reason that we need to listen to parents and integrate their, what's important to them into our therapy. Yes.
0: Very good point. Well, thank you so much, Karen. You're
1: very welcome.
0: You're a wealth of knowledge, and thank you so much for sharing just a piece of it with us. But I feel like we got a lot here in our less than hour time. And uh, you're an amazing therapist. I would love to to watch you in action. <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> I wanted. <to, laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you: Do you have a website, or is there an email?
1: Would you mind us contacting you? No, my email is is great. It's Karen, K-A-R-Y-N-L-S-2, at gmail. Um, I do have a book, which is Early Intervention for Speech and Language Empowering Parents, but it was published in 2011, and I'm in the process of rewriting it. It's through Plural Publishing Company here in San Diego, and they specialize in speech and language and audiology textbooks. Mm but I, I would hold off on purchasing my book until then. There okay. is a DVD with the original one, um, which does show some of the things. But I don't. I, I'm trying to rework it a little bit.
0: Okay, is that on plural as well?
1: The DVD. Yes, it's on plural. It's also on Amazon. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. All right. It comes with the book. Perfect. I appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Speech Link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.